0: In this particular section, we will cover the more technical elements of a scheme and a plan, which include the taxation and also the structures.
1: If you give somebody a share, um, they will pay tax on the unrestricted market value of that share.
2: You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp Podcast.
0: So welcome to part two of the podcast around share option plans and schemes. Uh, With us, we have the partner of uh, ORIC that deals specifically with employee share schemes and incentives, Ian Shaw. If you haven't watched part one, we covered uh, the definitions, uh, if if this is something that's new to you, as well as commercial terms with employees and how to walk through uh, conscientiously with an employee all the elements that make up a plan so that they're not confused, but also so that you've made the right decision in line with your culture. In this particular section, in this part, part two, we will cover the more technical elements of a, a scheme and a plan, which include the taxation and why certain uh, tax benefits are applicable for option schemes that aren't for regular shares and also the structures. So starting off with tax, and we can intermingle these a little bit if if, you, if need be, but Starting off with tax, I think one of the points that we brought up in part one was that there is an impact, a negative impact to somebody who is joining late in the game unless you grant them a tax favourable option. So maybe we can start with that, Ian. Walk us through why uh, option plans are more tax favourable for employees. Well,
1: they can be. So it all goes to value. So if somebody's joining early in the game, then the shares won't be worth very much and we've, con- we've considered why you commercially you might not want to give people shares rather than options, but from a tax point of view, if you give somebody a share early on in the game, that share won't be worth very much, so they'll either have to pay very little to acquire it, or if they acquire it for its nominal value, there won't be much tax on it. And the broad general point is, if you give somebody a share Then, um, assuming they sign what's called a 431 election, um, they will pay tax on the unrestricted market value of that share to the extent their consideration, so the price they pay to acquire that share, um, is less than that unrestricted market value. So, put that into an example if the share has an unrestricted market value of 100 and you pay one to acquire it, you'll have tax on 99 if you pay 50 to acquire it you'll have tax on the other 50 if you pay 100 to acquire it then obviously you've paid 100 for something worth 100 so you you so see you haven't got a benefit so there's clearly no tax on that now if the shares are all worth nominal which they might be in the early days then people can pay the nominal that's not a problem and all that and the they should consider entering into this uh, this 4-1 election for for tax reasons we can go into if if people want to but that's probably more something to discuss with your lawyers Um, and all your gain going forward then should if you've paid your unrestricted market value on on day one or been taxed by reference to it all your gain should be capital gains tax which at the current rates at the time we're filming this is is 20% might have gone up um, or possibly down but probably up by the time you listen to it um, so what happens if the share value is very high, as Carlos says, joining late in the game? If you were to get a share in Microsoft or something, you, that's got a high value. So either you to be having to pay the unrestricted market value of the share, which you might not be able to afford, or if they're good enough to give you that share for free or for its nominal value, then you'd have tax um, on the value of that share, less the nominal value. So what do you do to avoid that tax? Um, One one thing you could certainly do, as you say, is to grant an option. So in the UK, there's no tax broadly on the the grant of an option to an employee. So you've been granted an option over shares worth a million pounds. But because you haven't yet received those shares, there's no tax to pay. You've just got a right to acquire those shares, at whatever that exercise price might be. And a good illustration of why you might have come across EMI options or other tax-advantaged options are better than um, non-tax-advantaged options. It's provided um, in a graph I'm just going to screen share, which I'll talk people through who are listening audio only. So for those of you watching um, the video, I will just share the screen. And there's a graph here. So if you look at the graph on the left first, this is for fully taxable options. So these are options which are not EMI, not CSOP. These are, I haven't thought about anything to do with the tax, I've just granted this right to buy a share. In this case, at an exercise price of two pounds per share. Now you don't have to grant the options at market value um, unless it's a tax proof CSOP. Um, You can pick your exercise price. You just probably want to definitely grant with at least nominal value for company law reasons in the UK. So, you've granted the option, um, no tax on grant at all, then you come to exercise the option and what you've got is a right to buy a share which happily then is worth £3 because the market value of those shares has gone up. You pay £2 to exercise and you get something worth £3. So fairly obviously you've made a gain of one there and you're charged to income tax and potentially national insurance contributions um, on that benefit that you've received. In the same way as you'd be charged to income tax and national insurance contributions if you received a bonus or some of your salary. So now you hold shares. And the value has increased at the time you sell those shares, whether that's um, to a third party on a sale or whether that's as part of a secondary, perhaps um, to an investor or even to an employee benefit trust. Happily, the value has gone up again. So it's now £4. You have something that you've acquired for £3. That's what lawyers refer to as um, the base cost of those shares. And then when you sell them, you get £4 um, for them. So you've made a gain of one there. Now, absent various techie scenarios in which you've received an overvalue or something, um, your your gain that you make when you sell the shares should be subject to capital gains tax which uh, at the time of, time of writing is, is 20%, unless you're entitled to any, um, say, entrepreneur's relief, now known as business asset disposal relief, which can reduce your gain to 10%. And there's all sorts of reliefs as well, like you're allowed an annual exempt amount, which is just over £12,000 of gain you're allowed to make before you pay any capital gains tax. Now, that's not too bad in that you've received something um, on grant, you've received this right, this one-way bet to buy shares which are worth £2 um, at the time of grant and you haven't paid any tax at the time of grant. But the obvious downside, of course, is that on exercise you've paid income tax and national insurance contributions on your gain and then when you've sold your shares, obviously, you've got capital gains tax. So that's if you knew that those shares were definitely going to increase in value in that way and you had the money to either acquire um, those shares for two pounds initially um, or to acquire them for nominal value and pay the tax on day one for purely tax reasons you'd be in a better position having just acquired the shares because all your gain would be capital gains tax but of course you'd have paid out a potentially large sum of money and if the shares fell in value you wouldn't get that tax back it would have been like a very bad investment so what a lot of companies do is have what's called an enterprise management incentive option um, scheme and an enterprise management incentive option or um, there's another sort of options called CSOPs as well which are very broadly the same sort of tax effect um, we will not going into those because what you see generally at, at, at this level is EMI, unless you don't qualify. In which case, you might put in a CSOP, perhaps if you're a bank or something like that, which doesn't qualify. Um, and the reason why these are great is because they give you the best of both worlds. They give you the no tax on grant, which you get with an option, and they should—they're intended to give you. Um, a tax treatment which is all capital gains tax when you come to sell your shares so that that would be as if you'd owned a share all the way through so these are very much the best of both worlds And if you can see the graph, it's the same situation again. You get granted the options when the um, value is worth £2. When you come to exercise, so you don't have to grant EMI options at the market value uh, with an exercise price equal to the market value on grant. But if you do, there'll be no tax at all to pay when you come to exercise. So you won't have any tax um, if you exercise before a sale, before you can sell those shares you won't have the problem, you have a problem of having to pay the exercise price, but you won't have the problem of having to fund the tax charge before you've got sale proceeds to fund it out of. So you can exercise, own the shares, and then when you come to sell the shares, which obviously you have um, sale proceeds to pay your tax, um, you'll have capital gains tax on the amount by which the sale proceeds exceeds, again, what we call your base cost, And your base cost was how much you paid to acquire those shares um, and any tax you paid um, on exercise, obviously there, you haven't paid any tax on exercise, so your base cost is £2, on this example you've sold them for £4, that should all be capital gains tax. So the clear advantage of EMI options, if you qualify for them, is it is no tax on, you can structure them so there's no tax on exercise and all your tax on sale is capital gains tax and you don't end up paying any income tax and national insurance contributions. That's also a win-win for your employer because they don't need to be paying um, employer national insurance contributions. Although it's worth pointing out that if you're doing non-EMI options, so fully taxable options, you can transfer that employer's national insurance contributions liability that might arise to your employee. And that's a pretty standard thing to do in startups because that broadly gets it off your balance sheet.
2: Cool. Well, that's an incredibly um, incredibly useful overview, Ian. I think it's uh, really, really clear seeing it set, set out like this kind of graphically. Um, one, of the, one of the points which... I think has come up quite a lot when we've been speaking to founders recently and maybe at least over the last year or so is this idea of and i don't know there's some commercial reasons why you might go for a slightly different strike price, but the the kind of valuation process with h m r c and 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 getting that valuation as low as possible and sometimes it's not as low as possible and maybe you could walk us through a little bit about what the market's looking like at at that side of things at the moment and and even how in say the u k that process might differ from from other jurisdictions
1: sure and of course the big one that we come across there is in the us there are pretty nasty tax consequences if you grant what's called a discounted option and that basically means an option with an exercise price which is lower than what they call the 409a valuation after the um relevant uh, part of the act um, I'm, I'm not a US lawyer, but basically, if, if you grant an option which is has an excess price of less than this 409A value, that has pretty nasty tax consequences. Um, and the 409A value is basically what is the market value of this share? Um, now, in the UK, the, the actual market value and the unrestricted market value, actual market value is basically what would you and I sell this share to each other at? taking into account all the restrictions on it, such as forfeiture provisions, lever provisions, restrictions on transfer. The unrestricted market value, and I'll come on to why this is important in a moment, is a technical tax construct that says, what would this share be worth if you and I were to sell it to each other and completely ignore the the restrictions um, and the impact they have on value? Um, so, in the UK, um, you can agree the actual market value of a share for the pur- with, with HMRC for the purposes of granting EMI options and certain other tax um, favoured incentives you can't anymore you used to be able to but you can't anymore if you just give somebody a share so it's possible that if you just give somebody a share and say we think this is worth 100 um, by reference to let's say the unrestricted market value so I pay 100 for it it's possible that HMRC could say in the future oh no we think this was worth 500 and you didn't pay enough To receive it, so therefore, you ought to have paid tax on 400. with EMI you can agree that actual market value with HMRC and we didn't. you don't have to but we always encourage clients to do so so you've got certainty and certainly this would come up on a DD process and if you sell your company and you haven't agreed with HMRC your your actual unrestricted market value when you're granting EMI options you'll be asked to give an indemnity for the tax which potentially could be quite a bit. Um, so you agree the actual market value or AMV of your shares and if you grant your EMI options with an exercise equal to that amv then let's say there should be no tax when you come to exercise them the umv or unrestricted market value which is that value ignoring the restrictions so will be a little bit higher it is really only used say when you're giving people shares they must pay the UMV or pay tax by reference to the UMV, so there's no in, there's no income tax going forwards, um, and in the EMI context, the UMV is used to calculate the individual limit of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds per person and three million for the company. Now, the conflict between the 409A and the and the, the UK actual market value, you can often agree with HMRC, is that 409A, for various technical reasons involving how much of a discount you take for lack of liquidity and minority stakes, is often higher than your UK AMV. So, if you grant some US companies say, look, we're just going to use the 409A, we want everybody all over the world to have the same exercise price. Um, Yes, you can do that. And we see that done. And they just submit the 409A to HMRC and say, can you please agree this as the unrestricted market value and perhaps actual market value is a little less. Um, That's fine. Um, But you should know if you do that, that you could generally potentially get a lower actual market value from HMRC and make your EMI options more tax efficient in the UK. Because then you would have a lower excise price and that gain would be subject to CDT. If you put a higher exercise price than you needed to, then you're basically asking people to pay for something which could have been tax favored gain.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of detail within that, Ian, that that's <laughs> worth unpacking. And it sounds like one of the biggest challenges here is for global companies, right? If you have a company who's American and who has got to deal with foreign NA and then they've got a UK company, should they do this, should they do that? Are they leaving money on the table? And I mean, this is where this podcast is going to hit its wall, right? There's a limit at which point you should just whip out your wallet and pay Ian for his advice in person for your unique circumstances. So for sure, hopefully you've heard enough to understand that it's a complex series of trade-offs But effectively, by getting the valuation as low as possible, you give your employees a chance to potentially have a higher value at the end of it. And provided that's in a tax wrapper that's efficient for the jurisdiction you're in, you can help maximize the absolute returns once it's all done and dusted. However, if I go back to this point I was making about international firms, one of the things that is increasingly happening is that because of this international remote work world that we're living in today, new structures are being born by which to be able to create this equivalence of value that we talked about in part one. And some of these include phantom and ghost shares. Some of these include restrictive stock units. Ian, could you walk us through all the different structures, just maybe name them, and then walk us through how they differ in tackling these issues that we've talked about, Um, namely valuation, namely some of the points that we discussed earlier around voting rights, uh, administrative challenges, approval process, and levers.
1: Sure, I mean that that podcast could take the length of a test match, but at a very <laughs> high level, um, we've talked about EMI. That's broadly, if you grant them at with an exercise price equal to your actual market value, that's the right to buy a share. And when you exercise that right, there's no tax to pay. And when you sell the shares you've acquired, um, that should all be capital gains tax. The other thing you see is if, you know, that if you want an EMI but you can't get one because you don't qualify for whatever reason, there's various um, restrictions on the company and, and the business that it carries out and also on employees. Um, you may qualify for what's called a company share option plan or CSOP, which broadly gives you the same tax benefits as EMI, except the limits are lower. It's £30,000 per person rather than two hundred and fifty. pounds um, And uh, you broadly, again, have to hold the option for three years. Um, So we see that for companies which either don't qualify, so they're perhaps banks or something, um, and um, also for companies which have outgrown EMI, because EMI is only for companies which have 250 employees or or fewer, um, or gross assets of 30 million pounds or or less. So if you can't do EMI and you can't do CSOP, then what could you do? We could grant non-tax favoured options, as we've just seen. There's no tax on grant for employees, but when they exercise, um, they um, would have to pay income tax and potentially national insurance contributions um, on exercise. Um, So if you don't want to do that either, you could... You could just give people shares. Um, We've talked about that. If those shares uh, have value, then you're going to be paying tax on that value to the extent you don't pay the unrestricted market value for those shares. Um, You could try and suppress the value of those shares effectively by setting yourself up a different class of share, which only benefits from the market value going forward. And those are what's known as growth shares. And they're... The plumbing is quite complicated, but the general idea is quite simple. The general idea is that your class of growth shares, you basically put in the share rights in the articles that you will only receive something once all the ordinary shares, for instance, have received the today market value of a share. So say if the today market value of an ordinary share is five pounds, Um, and you receive a growth share, you put in the articles that the growth shares will only start sharing in the proceeds of a sale um, after each ordinary share has received £5. And then you go off to a valuer. So you you can't agree the market value of those shares with HMRC anymore. Um, But if you go to a valuer, they will generally tell you that that growth share, um, due to the fact that it only benefits going forward, is effectively hope value. Um, that will be worth about 10 to 15 percent of the value of an ordinary share. So when you receive it, yes, you'll have tax to pay, but it won't be worth as much. So you won't pay tax on as much. Um, Or if you're going to pay full and restricted market value for that share, you won't have to pay as much for it because it's not worth as much. So it's almost replicating the effect of joining at an earlier stage and receiving a share when they weren't worth as much. You also see getting slightly whizzier. um, You also see what's called a JSOP, which is a joint um, share ownership plan or a jointly owned share plan. That achieves broadly the same effect as a growth share. But instead of having to create a new class of share, you split the interest in the share into the today market value and the going forward market value. hope value, if you like, and the today market value is held by a third party, often the trustee of an employee benefit trust for administrative and various tax reasons, which is often set up offshore, often in Jersey, and the hope value, which is held by the employee, and then their tax when they acquire that interest in their shares. So, they achieve the same thing commercially as growth shares, slightly whizzier, but um, achieves the same thing. And we should, should point out obviously, none of those things are, are tax evasion. You're paying for what? you're getting, you're paying for a growth share, you're paying for your interest in a jointly owned share. And then um, provided you're, you're paying the full market value for that, your um, increase in value going forward when you come to make the disposal of your share or your interest in the jointly owned shares, that should all be capital gains tax because you've paid your unrestricted market value of your growth share or interest up front Um, Or you've paid tax by reference to the the unrestricted market value of that growth share interest. So if you don't want to give people equity or it's very difficult in a particular jurisdiction, you can do what Carlos called ghost shares. You see them called phantom shares or um, shadow equity. Um, They're not quite as exciting as the name might suggest. They're basically a right to an amount of cash based on how much that share is worth. So you say when you exercise, I'm not getting an actual share, which is worth whatever it is, and then I'm going to sell that share and receive cash proceeds. You simply receive effectively those cash proceeds. So you say that phantom share, an actual share is worth 100, so I'm basically just given 100 in cash. Now, in almost all jurisdictions, that would be taxed. Well, so I can only advise on, on, U, on, on UK law, but in the jurisdictions I've come across, that is generally taxed as income um, in the same way that salary is taxed as income because it's effectively a bonus. It's an amount of cash given to you by reference to your employment. So I think that that probably covers this in terms of options which are – Fall into and options being rights to shares, and those fall into tax-favoured, tax-advantaged options and non-tax advantaged options, what people used to call unapproved options. Um, then there's the actual giving you a share, which could be a growth, uh, an ordinary share or a growth share, or an interest in a share under a JSOP. Um, then there's all uh, so then, then there's the Phantom or Shadow Equity or Ghost Shares, which is basically just a right to cash. Then there's also a slight variant on rights to shares, which is what's called RSUs. Um, and your RSUs are broadly like an option, but the you don't have to exercise it. They're automatically exercised when something happens, be that the share the RSU vests, or be that you get to an exit. Um, The reason you tend not to see those too much in the UK they're more of a US thing but in the UK you can time when your tax arises if you have an option so if you say well actually I'm not going to make much salary in this particular tax year perhaps because I'm retiring or perhaps I'm taking a sabbatical or something then you might choose to exercise your option in that particular year and have your gain potentially fall into a lower tax bracket where an RSU, you don't have the freedom to do that because it, it just vests when it on, on a particular date or a particular occurrence, a particular contingency. Um, so, what else do you see? Restricted stock, um, which is where you just issue the shares subject to various restrictions. That's usually taxed um, upfront. So, you can end up paying tax on something that you never receive. You can structure that Um, for ways that are probably a bit too complex to go into but you can structure that in a way that you don't pay tax up front on forfeitable shares um that's something to run through with your lawyers but um you can you can end up if you don't pay tax up front you can end up paying income tax when the restrictions on those shares fall away um or indeed when you dispose of those shares
0: but well on on those points i mean ian thanks for that that's a That's a very good list, and I think we could go into each one of those in in detail. And I think one of the things that we've talked about with Tom uh, in the past uh, and with founders is this idea that some of the decisions you make in life aren't entirely permanent. You can kind of amend them, whether they be stock share splits or whether it's a jurisdictional change. How much are these commitments to these structures permanent? How much of them can be amended or evolved or transformed, if you will?
1: Going forward, you can pretty much transform what you like because so you need to make it very clear to employees that they don't have any contractual rights to be granted an incentive. And they certainly don't have any contractual right to be granted an incentive in any particular form. So you you would, we would encourage you to keep any sort of options talk separate from their employment contracts. Um, but in terms of if you've already granted options, you generally can't make adverse changes to those options, to the detriment, to the disadvantage of option holders, because you've effectively given them a contractual right. Yeah. An option. You can't take that away. You could agree with them. Is in- that
0: is that inclusive of tax benefits that are that are potentially like you, you're having to migrate to like some sort of more international plan? But there's a, a slight shift in some of the the tax benefits. Is that inclusive of that?
1: I think you'd probably take the view that it was. I mean, it would depend on the facts. But if I held an EMI option and you said I'm changing that EMI option so that you don't get that beneficial tax treatment anymore, I, I think you would definitely
0: worry that that was an adverse change. And you'd have to um, make up for it maybe somehow. Just you might still need to make that change, but you just have to think about how to compensate for that. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's that that would be a pretty corner case. It would be rare that you would need to rip up people's EMI options. But if you had done something that you did need to rip up, then typically you would do something called a surrender and regrant. Um, And you would do that and you go to your employees and say, look, this is the reason we need to change it. We've got to get your consent to do this. Mm -hmm. And they would sign something that says, I give up my existing option or reward or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, you'll grant me this. Now, it's worth checking the tax. Broadly, if you give up one option to receive another option, that should be fine in the UK. But um, it's definitely worth checking because it's not always tax surrenders and regrants are not always tax depending yeah. what you get in return. But that that's something to pick up on a case by case basis. Well,
0: the reason I was asking that question is because it's it's really to wrap up the the whole the whole theme and and part two of this is around helping companies understand how to set up and what changes may be possible once they are set up, especially in light of how global companies are. You know. Um, One of our companies recently came to me with some of these questions because they were very much struggling with this idea that they were a UK company, but they were hiring contractors in one geography and that contractor wanted to be um, a contractor for various reasons, but also wanted to have some of the incentives of an employee and therefore there was a um, a phantom share scheme crafted in that jurisdiction for that employee, but then there was a, a bunch of other employees who were actual employees but they were in geographies where the, the EMI scheme didn't apply, so they didn't need to have another pool. And so what you're finding is that this, this founder, early days, finding the best talent, which happens to now be all remote anyway, is struggling to come up with a legal structure for employee schemes that makes sense and that is easy and that is quick and simple. And so maybe the last question for you in this in this section, and Tom, feel free to comment on it if you'd like, is really what is the best recommendation today? For an early stage company who knows that from the onset they were going to have to hire global, talent is not based in the same tax jurisdiction that the company is in, what is the piece of advice you can give?
3: I think set up um, what's best for the jurisdiction you're now in. And we should just point out as well that it's not always possible to change EMI options, um, especially to the option holder's benefit um, or CSOP options um, once they're in place because very broadly, it, it can amount in tax terms to the grant of a new option. Um, but in terms of putting in your plan on day one, if you're a UK company, then if you can open a, in an EMI plan day one, because that's the best in that jurisdiction, um, and then really just as you grow, be aware that as you say, that if you're not a UK taxpayer, that's not going to be beneficial in the States. Um, And indeed, if you granted somebody an option in the States at the actual market value, you might be granting them a discounted option. So the key thing, and you might say, well, he would say this, wouldn't he, is to get legal advice properly and before you do something in the relevant jurisdiction. So if we have a company that um, decides to take on US employees, we say, look, don't grant them options under your current plan until you've checked with US lawyers. Typically, the U.S. lawyers would then say, "We'll put a subplan onto your plan, under which you the options granted to U.S. people are subject to the same terms, except these terms, which are unlawful, for instance, in the U.S. and including of these terms, which are, say, securities law representations. Uh, And there's often securities law filings that can be prospectus requirements if you're unlucky." Um, And there can certainly be tax implications and tax compliance for the company. So it's really before you even make the offer of an option or an award to somebody in a different jurisdiction, make sure you get tax and securities law advice in that jurisdiction. And you can either expand your plan organically, so you can put on different subplans for different jurisdictions, or you can just say, well, the tax sort of is what it is. If you've only got a few employees in a particular jurisdiction, Or you might just say, give them cash bonuses if it really doesn't work in that jurisdiction. Or, of course, you could do an entirely separate plan. And that will really come down to cost. And the question you certainly ask your lawyers is, look, we've got these three other jurisdictions now. We definitely want to grant options in these these jurisdictions. Um, Then there's there's two ways of doing that. You can either say, Can you do the sort of minimum to ensure that this is legal and tell us what our security law filings we need to make and tell us what our tax compliance obligations are? Have we got withholding obligations? Have we got employer national insurance or social security contributions to pay? Or you could say, could you also tell us, and you should certainly ask them to tell you, are there any tax favoured plans in these jurisdictions? Because there might be a sort of e- EMI equivalent, like sort of an ISO plan in the US that you've been missing out on if you if you, if you did that. And then you'd say to them, how much more is that going to cost me to implement? Do I need a separate plan? Can you do it by way of a sub-plan for our current scheme? Um, and then weigh up whether the cost of putting that in um, translates into a tangible benefit for your employees in that jurisdiction.
2: Couldn't have said it better myself. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... Um, yeah, I mean I think it's you know it's it's definitely like case by case and I think that it's one of those areas where I I think that you know there's there's certain things where you can as a founder kind of get by without I mean always with advice but with less advice I think when it comes to tax when it comes to impacting individuals I think it's something that you know like getting that really good advice and and understanding it a little bit before making promises is something which is which is super important as as a founder um and but I think that, I guess, you know, this episode and, well, these these two episodes probably, probably together show that there's a wealth of different ways to do this kind of stuff. Um, And there's, you know, there's great law firms like Auric, which are really creative and been able to come to solutions. So I think that, you know, it's it's all possible. It's just almost the staging of how, how you explain it and how you're very, very transparent with the founders, with the employees of the company.
1: Yeah. And I think just um, eh, not a plug necessarily with Auric, but just, just, to get yourself decent legal advice. Certainly one of our clients who was late stage said, look, I've had a 40 year career in the city. And he said that one of the things I've learned is that the most expensive thing you can buy your company is cheap legal advice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and with that, we wanted to thank you, Ian, for both uh, spending this marathon amount of time with us. If you are listening to this back to back, you probably experienced it the same way that we did back to back, (laughs) uh, which is extra exciting and extra fun and thanks so much for the energy you put into it and the research you put into this ian and tom as well for your energy and thanks guys and look to the show notes for links to some of the points and uh perhaps a a visualization of the graph that you shared us um ian and we'll we'll share that on the show notes excellent guys and until next time thank
2: you thanks guys Bye.